We're back! We're back! It's a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? I'm good, man. How's uh, How are things with you? You doing all right? Oh, fine. I'm fine. We actually, we were going to have a guest this week. We we're going to have Bears Whiteout Chase Claypool on, but he asked to stay home this week. So just you and me, Roth. Or he so was asked to stay home? It's sort of hard to say. Yeah, we don't we don't quite know. It could be could be one way or the other. I just, you know, I just run the place. I don't yeah, really I have a good say, handle. Can I make a suggestion, just a, a messaging suggestion? If we want this story to go away, I think we need to give three or four very unclear answers to this question. Yeah, that's true. Our Also, our defensive coordinator uh, on the podcast, he resigned or we fired him. Or maybe he's getting divorced and it's kind of <laughs> weird. Or we don't really Gitmo. Yeah. It's hard to say. I just want to say that the FBI did not investigate me. It did categorically. Oh, right. yes, Nobody visited anybody's house. No. Peanut Tillman was not involved in any way. We're talking about the Bears, but that's not the subject of this week's podcast. No, it's not, Roth, because it's just you and me. However, it's not one of our usual, uh, you know, where we sit around and jerk off for an hour. I actually require your expertise for this podcast because this is, buddy, you the, the Major League Baseball guy. playoffs begin this week. They began on Tuesday, and so I need you to give me a lay of the land for a very special <laughs> to the playoffs. Uh, to refresh your memory, and by your memory, I mean mine, mm -hmm. the one-off play-in games no longer exist. Uh, starting last year, they had a best of three wild card round for the first round before we moved on to the ALDS. So I'd like to break down uh, these wild card entrants and then go to the top two seeds in each league. And you tell me about these teams because Roth, I know fuck all. I am I am the clueless idiot. And you are the less clueless idiot who, wow. hel who helps That's enlighten a, me. Yeah. With great power comes great responsibility. Mm -hmm. All right, that let's do it. Right. Go ahead. You want to sing Haters Guide again? I wouldn't mind if you did. I think the listeners might. I think they All right, might that's fair. No, we got to, I suppose. Uh, uh, in the American League, uh, yeah. we have the first series that we're going to break down is the Tampa Bay Rays against the Texas Rangers. So I want to ask you about the Rays first because they're good and they're usually good. And they're good... And this is, you can, you can correct me here, but it seems to me that they're good in the Moneyball A's sort of way where they, they get as much juice out of the orange as they can on a limited budget. But that means that there is a hard ceiling that they're always probably going to come up against every fall. Is that a correct assessment? Are they a financially sa savvy team that really isn't ever going to win anything? Well, I mean, it's funny. Like, I think it's a correct assessment. I think it's also the sort of thing that's true right up until it stops being true. I think they're awfully good this year. Okay. But they're still they're still raising it, you know, that there's like, obviously, they're not the team that is the cheapest or the most cynical in this postseason. We'll get to the Orioles eventually. But the Rays are, this is like maybe a peak Rays sort of roster. Um it's super optimized. Everything's really versatile. All the parts sort of fit together in a really sophisticated and intricate way. And it's also a lot easier to admire in the abstract than it is when you think about the Rays. And so that, this is a weird matchup because the Rays and the Rangers were basically the like, two best teams in baseball, give or take the Braves for the first hundred games. Like this was, it's kind of crazy that this is a wild card series. Well, and what happened after those hundred games? Uh, well, the Orioles got really good and the Rays cooled off. I mean, the okay. Rays didn't lose for like weeks at the start of the season, but they, I mean, they still wound up being an extremely good team. They just had a 101 win team in their division. 
And the Rangers, like every team in the National League West, like there were three teams playing for what wound up being two playoff spots. And it was like watching teams compete in like who could have a more severe asthma attack like the last three weeks of the season. <laughs> like none of them exactly played great. Uh, and the Rangers at this point, like, are down basically their three best starting pitchers. So it's still a, an, oh. incre yeah, well, it's an incredibly bad. good starting lineup. And they still have, I mean, they spent a lot of money on pitchers. So, like, the next three guys up are all people whose names you'd recognize, like Nate Valdi's in there. And I guess, I don't know if normal people know who Andrew Heaney is. I don't even know if Andrew Heaney's going to start. They might, like, do an opener thing for that game. But the Rangers score a ton of runs. They're really good. The Rays, well, I was going to ask, do they have the bats to make up for that pitching deficit? They have nothing but the bats. That team scores Ooh. a ton of runs. That they, sounds fun. That and sounds also, like a fun the, team. I mean, they're like, I admire what they did. I mean, it's like being a Rangers fan, like the idea of just being like, I love Arlington. I love the energy. Like, no, I'm not going to ever have a positive <laughs> right, opinion. Playing in that fucking tool shed that they Right, they like play. it literally looks like a Bass Pro Shop, but like right. a less swaggy Bass Pro Shop. Like not one of the pyramids, like one of those ones that like it used to be a Napa Auto Parts, but now it's something else. The In this case, I think that the Rangers spent a lot of money getting hitters and they did the thing that I, good teams do where they, they basically, they signed Corey Seager and Marcus Semyon in the same offseason. Those guys were both shortstops at the time that they signed them. But they were like two of the best players that they could get. Semyon can play second base, play third base if you need him to. And it worked. Both those guys hit great this year. Like Seager's going to be it, like getting top of the ballot MVP votes. And he played in like 115 games. Like he was incredible. Was there any uh, Jeter A-Rod sort of tension there with two No, everybody's stops? been really normal. That's what's wow. weird. <laughs> yeah, like... Like peace and harmony in Texas? Mm. In Texas. I mean, I don't know if it's the sort of thing where they, like, each of those guys has, like, secretly been buying a slightly larger truck every week all year to try to, oh, like, one-up the other no guy. Oh, no doubt about that. Right? But there's I, a white guy... We're talking about white guys here, right? Well, one white guy, yes. But there's... Okay, well, the white guy, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, the Seegers have a... There's an interesting energy to the Seeger uh, family of baseballing... Uh, dudes we don't need to go into into you know how vaccinated they are or not it's not important no one the whole thing's over now nobody cares uh i, <laughs> I like the rangers and i would love to see them win this because i think it's fun when a team that has like a bunch of 35 homer guys uh turns it on in the postseason the rays to me like if they won the world series like it would never surprise me and yet at the same time as you said because it hasn't happened yet and because they've gone Further than they did in the past, but never quite to the point where they're like trading for Justin Verlander down the stretch or something like that. I think it would be great if they ever did that, but I also don't think they're going to do that. Maybe when they get their dumb new stadium, they'll do it. Who has the um, who has the home field advantage here? Is it uh, is it the Rangers or is Seager going to be on the road again? Wow, I thought I was going to look that question up, and then I realized it was actually just a gag. So that's a, it's a good bit. Thank you. Thank you. Very maybe much. we could turn. Maybe we should turn the page. Uh, next series is the Twins and the Blue Jays. Now, I somewhat have to recuse myself as a lapsed Twins fan who watched them win the titles in '87 and '91. I'm old enough to remember those World Series titles, so I still never think of the Twins as being sort of hapless and cursed. If you want to, you know, use that cliche again. But the rest of Minnesota 
Well, Roth, I think you know how those people can get. So those people, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, this is we were going to have uh, former U.S. Representative Michelle Bachman on the podcast this week to discuss this, but she's very busy. Uh, they won the worst division in baseball this season. Is there any reason for me to believe that they have a shot, particularly now that Royce Lewis is going to be active for the series? So. This is something that I have to, um, our friends at baseballperspectus.com, they're, they're a great website. I enjoy reading it. I'm a little upset with them because I read a post there that made me think that the twins don't just have a shot, but that they're like kind of a likable underdog story. Whereas I think of everything that comes out of the American league central as being not likable, uh, as just sort of being, uh, like, a, I don't want to say a waste product, but like something that gets produced in the process of making baseball, that sometimes there's leftovers, like a like with chunks of solids in it, you know, that that's kind of what I think of the American League Central Baseball product as being. You can call it sewer runoff. It's can... like a sewer runoff or like a fatberg, if you're familiar with the term of like a fatberg. You know, what is a fat show? You're not That's talking about thing. a fat burger. No, no. Uh, I'm talking about like you fat. Oh, the things that like show up in the sewers where it's just like because people are pouring bacon grease down the drain. Yeah, like a fucking like a blob that's gonna like turn sentient and like fucking absorb you. And yes, Ooh. there was one that they found. And I mean, I can't even imagine what a terrible cooking went into producing. But there was one under London that was like you know basically the size of a smaller British city that was yeah. Just, Years oh, of people being like, I'm going to pull me sausage grease down the drain, I am. Ter- and then like terrifying. 20 years later, there's this thing. Yeah, it's got chunks of chip buddy in it. Anyway. Uh, let me tell you something. I let me just say, I just say I have a primal fear of blobs. Like I never saw the original blob or the remake with Kevin Dillon, which of course is an immortal film. Mm-hmm. But like just the idea of a giant blob eating everybody scares me to death. So the fat burg, I'm not really, I'm not really game about that so let's talk about are the, are the twins good mm, the pitching is good pitching Ooh. is extremely good uh I mean, the hitting is not good and all of the hitters that are good are hurt uh or suddenly bad or in the case of carlos correa both of those things um but if you can get past the fact that the lineup is like a bunch of guys named kyle that you definitely do not know who they are the pitching is excellent and it's been excellent all year like they definitely have a chance in the series i think it's like easy to write them off and i like also i mean of the other things i'm obviously a pretty soft touch for goofy baseball in october like a team that has such good pitching that no one can put more than the run or two across against them just like kind of shutting teams down in october that is also cool to me the blue jays are are good uh and i think they probably will win this series but the twins are it's not like the same sort of like twinsy thing. Cause it definitely is that, like you were saying, like the idea of them as being, you know, the best team in the shittiest division, more or less by default. And they were the best team in the division by default. Like the, the second place team, I think it was the Tigers won 78 games. Like there's right, no, there were, yeah, there's no good teams in there, but I don't think the twins are like, to be written off quite as as readily as uh, as I was prepared to do it. So they don't sound um, like a very thank fun you. team, though. No, that... not really. I mean, oh. like it depends. Like the pitching is cool, uh, and they have like if they get to the closer, uh, Yohan Duran is like really fun. Like I think he's neat, but the starting pitching is kind of it's like you know Sunny Gray having a good season. It's nothing that's gonna like blow your hair back. It's just like they're good pitchers have pitched well. What about the Blue Jays? Are they fun? Like, are we talking about a team that could be potentially as fun as the 
the Jose Batista Blue Jays or not? Not close. To yeah, them. they don't have quite the um, like psychopathic edge that those teams did because that was Jose Bautista and, and Josh Donaldson. So that had kind of a like like those like eighties action movies where like I uh, liked um, it. Yeah, like it had a, a tango and cash sort of vibe to it, and it, play, and it fills out to the crowd too. Those crowds were fucking nuts. It was a yes. good, good crowd, and so that's kind of why I'm hoping that Toronto can make some sort of noise in the postseason. Like that is a really fun place to watch postseason baseball, and the team's got cool players on it. It's sort of the you know like if you followed them at all or whatever, you know, it's nothing necessarily new in the lineup, but it is like, these are fun guys like Bo Bichette and like Black Guerrero Jr. are cool. It's just, they're also, and this is, I think still sort of the case. It's, it's an imperfect, uh, sort of assemblage. It's not their fault that they weren't as good as the Rays or the Orioles. Cause both those teams were extremely good this year, but they're definitely not as good as either of those teams. All right, let's go over to the National League. Our first series is the Milwaukee Brewers against the Arizona Diamondbacks. I can't believe mm. the Diamondbacks are good, but are they? Are they the worst team in the field? And if not, why aren't they? I mean, I think they, well, it depends on how you feel about the Marlins. The Marlins have a worse run differential than like up to and including a bunch of teams that finished under 500, including the Padres, I think including the Mets. But the Marlins are, Ahead of the Diamondbacks in the wild card standings, they're like, I, I think they are anyway. The Diamondbacks are not good. Um, I have watched them a decent amount. I don't see it. Um, and I'm like, they have some really good players. Corbin Carroll's fantastic, and the rest of it is just, I guess, a function of them, uh, sort of being slightly better than expected while a bunch of teams that were supposed to finish ahead of them were much worse than expected. Well, right, like because these, the National League was was quite top-heavy this season, right? It was super top-heavy, and then there were teams, I mean, the, the Padres and the Mets both spent a ton of money and have teams that have a bunch <laughs> of main players on them. Yeah, and both of those teams finished with, you know, win totals in the 70s. That's Oof. bad, you know? And so what happens then i mean like somebody has to win fucking 84 games you know and the diamondbacks it's not the most inspiring why not us story imaginable but they're they're solid well then i guess i'm i'm rooting for the brewers who want a new goddamn stadium already that's not a baseball question roth i'm just irritated no it's know? annoying they built that fucking thing like in 2001 or some shit like that it's a big nice stadium yeah and it's nobody says it's bad or like falling apart it's just no! one of those, yeah that is one of those deals where, so I don't know that the Brewers are asking for this too, but the, one of the things I hate the most about Major League Baseball owners, and this is, it's a pretty long list. It's got a lot of things on it, <laughs> is that all of these owners want to replicate the stupid fucking mall that the Atlanta Braves built in the Atlanta suburbs with the stadium in it. And then it's also got like a rainforest cafe and there's a parade every 45 minutes. Like it's, if you play in a real city, like the Braves did play in a real city, and then they were like, I don't like this. I think I'd rather play 40 miles away in a place that you have to drive to if that's possible. Right. And so they do that. The Brewers, Milwaukee is cool. Like your baseball stadium is in a cool city. Just do that. You don't have to remake a neighborhood to make it some bummy rich guy's idea of what a fun place is. None of this will be more offensive than the Ricketts trying to like terraform Wrigleyville to conform to their vision. Like, Literally to Tom Ricketts idea of what a good time is. Like a bone chilling, like 
lament configuration prospect there, but okay, but they they're not gonna move the Cubs to Arlington Heights or any of that shit. No, they're not. I mean, I think that the the White Sox have definitely talked about that. Where like they're like maybe Naperville is uh, is where we should be. And like, oh yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah. That sounds very White Sox. Terrific. Me. Yeah, just because it's like small time and cheesy. All right. The other uh, the other series is uh, the Phillies and the Marlins. Are these Phillies better or worse than the National League champion Phillies from a year ago? Roth. So I think they're about the same. Uh, the addition of Trey Turner, especially given that he's played like Trey Turner since the fans started being nice to him and all that, like that helps. The offense is really good. They're still sure. having a lot of fun and they believe in themselves. The starting pitching has been a tick worse than it was last year, but it, it kind of, I think, doesn't matter. I don't think it'll matter much in this series. I don't get the Marlins at all. I don't understand how they're where they are well that's um, what i was gonna ask you like is it yet another anonymous marlins team that wins the world series and then sucks for like a decade afterward i mean you can't rule it out that's the thing that i can't first, i well, though because i want to i would love to also i just i've been burned before the thing with this is that the other marlins teams that like got in the wild card and won the world series had like really really good players on them this team does not exactly have that like it's more of a kind of a uniformity of cromulence across the roster as opposed to the sort of thing where, you know, like if you look at the like the early Marlins, like the World Series champion, it had like a bunch of guys who would go on to play for 20 years. Like it had Miguel Cabrera on it, you know, like these are Hall of Fame, you know, like that type of caliber players. That's not the case with this team. This is like Luisa Reyes and like end stage Yuli Gurriel and like and some good pitching. I don't know how a team that they basically got all of the luck that a team like the Padres did not have that like the Marlins winning finishing with a positive like record above 500 with the run differential they had does not make sense. And given that they did that already, I guess you can't really rule out anything that would follow from this. I think the Phillies are beatable. I think they will also win this series. I just think they're better. It made me think of a, a, another question, which is that Going back to the Moneyball A's, this is as much as I want to talk about the A's as, as possible, but it was always uh, based on the idea that all you had to do was make the field of, in the playoffs. Yeah. And the playoff field in baseball was such a crapshoot that, hey, you could win a World Series just by making it in. Like, that was sort of, that was really all you had to do. Is that, do you feel like that's still the case or is it a bit, is there a bit more rigidity and less variance in the playoff hierarchy uh, in 2023 than there used to be? I think it's still the case, but it's, I mean, obviously, of course, it would be easier. I think it's easier to have that scenario and make it to the World Series. Like the Phillies did this last year, and, you know, like other teams have done it in the past. October is stupid. The series are, are short, weird things happen. Every team is like down some guys and all that. So, yeah, dumb things happen. And it still makes sense the idea that like anybody, up to and including the stupid ass Marlins has a chance to like <laughs> do do real damage in the postseason. I just think that given the way that things have sorted, even accounting for the, you know, irrationality of how things happen in October, even, you know, accounting for how unrepresentative these series are, the really good teams are a lot better than the wild card teams. And the question is, you know, does that matter as much? I think that the really good teams now might be that like the difference between the Braves and the Marlins is probably a bigger gap than it was between the A's and, you know, the I'm trying to think of who the dynasts were at that time. I guess it was probably the Yankees. Yeah, that, like I would say it's the Yankees. And that in that case, like 
you know, those Yankees teams are really good too. It's just that the A's had all of these players sort of peaking and they just got stuck in a wild card and that's how it was. With the more wild cards means more wild card teams. And when you start getting down to like the bottom of that postseason pool, like I think the Marlins could do anything up to and including making the World Series. I don't think that they're, it's really, really hard to win a World Series, I guess is what I'm saying. And so I have a hard time believing that any of the wild card teams, with the possible exception of both Texas and Tampa Bay, could do that. But who knows? Well, let's talk about the big boys when we come back. We'll we'll take a break. Uh, before we do, uh, I would just like to plug Michael Lewis's new book, How to Lose Your Credibility in 10 Days, only <laughs> from Simon & Schuster. We'll be right back. Get his ass. Hey, it's true. Are you looking to get a Friday Night Light style fix? Well, get nostalgic for preseason with Power 10, a new audio drama about a rebellious young athlete who must learn to keep his demons in check to qualify for an elite rowing team. Search Power 10 on Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. This episode of The Distraction is brought to you by Tab for a Cause. Tab for a Cause is a browser extension that lets you raise money for charity while doing your thing online. If you install the extension on Firefox, Chrome, or Safari, it will show you a beautiful photo and a small ad every time you open a new tab. Part of that ad money goes towards a charity of your choice. They've raised over $1.5 million so far and even published quarterly financial reports so you can see exactly how much they give to each charity and what their other costs are. Join Team Distraction by signing up at tabforacause.org slash distraction. That's tabforacause.org slash distraction. We're back uh, going through the MLB playoff field. Before we do, though, I made a tossed-off joke about Michael Lewis uh, before we went into the break. And actually, we we realized during the break that we wanted to talk about this a, a little bit more because I tell you, Roth, that uh, I'm not, like, exactly excited that Michael Lewis has made an ass of himself in the past few months. He, in, he wrote a book about uh, Sam Bankman-Fried that was far, far, far too friendly uh, to SBF. As far uh, as is, anyone knows, we're all going yeah. off excerpts. Apparently, people got their galleys, like people got review copies of the book the day before it was released, which is the day that we're recording this. Clearly, something's not cooking right with this project beyond the fact that it exists. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it was clearly it was clearly conceived to be uh, sort of a and you can, I'm going by the the New York Times review of the book here of Going Infinite that it was it was conceived initially by Lewis to be a celebration of this man and his vision. And he was exposed as a fraud while he was writing it. And essentially Lewis was either unable or it would appear unwilling to change this into a, a study of a man's downfall. And it appears that he just sort of tried to keep you know, it's almost like the Posnansky Paterno book that, you know, Joe Posnansky wrote a book about Joe Paterno, like as the Sandusky sandal was breaking and then Pos just sort of kept on at it. He kept fucking that chicken with the bio. Yeah. And it didn't Not a career work. highlight. It's like and, the one night. I mean, it's kind of a good reason 
not to do this kind of book. The idea of like writing a great man biography of someone who's still alive and fucking up is an extremely risky endeavor. Yeah, and this comes on the heels of Lewis also taking the side of the Tui family. Uh, the Tuis were the people who were, uh, and again, I'm gonna. I have to put this in, in quotes. They were the adoptive parents of former Ravens tackle Michael Orr, but it turned out that that was a boondoggle. It was a conservative ship so that they could leech uh, off of Orr's earnings. Well, Michael Lewis issued a statement or talked today about Orr, and he said, what we're watching is a change in behavior. This is what happens to football players who get hit in the head. They run into problems with violence and aggression, somehow implying that Michael Orr wanted out of his conservatorship, which he got, he got out of his conservatorship, because he had CTE, which is like the most irresponsible shit you could possibly say. Yeah. And I'm, unbelievable. All, and all of this bothers me because I really liked Michael Lewis. I really admired him, loved, I, I loved his books. I think he's a fantastic writer. And to see him, it, it's the same thing that happened with Walter Isaacson, who wrote a fawning biography of Elon Musk that Musk clearly did not deserve. And then you're talking about a guy who wrote the definitive biography of Steve Jobs, a book that I thought was fucking incredible. Yeah, Just that everybody great, thinks is incredible. A great, yeah. great book. And now I have him and I have Lewis, two guys who I sort of am banking on to give me the goods whenever they publish something, essentially going into this sort of Bob Woodward hobnobbing shit where they're just sort of happy to be around, to rub elbows with right. people of their ilk. And they don't really see the consequences of these people's behavior. It's super disappointing. I mean, I, not to to one-up you here, but like M Michael Lewis has been a favorite of mine. I think he's probably one of the first people that I remember reading and being like, damn, that seems cool. Being a writer seems like something I could do. Like I remember my dad getting getting copies of The New Republic when Lewis was writing for you. He was covering the uh, Republican primary field, I think, in like 95 and 96. So, Bunch of winners there, baby. A lot, and he loved all the freaks. Like, Lewis loved Alan Keyes, Maury Taylor, all these guys. Like, oh, and, fucking Alan and Keyes. And he was, so he was like sort of, you know, filing dispatches from the campaign trail, and they were great. And it's the sort of thing that <laughs> this is, uh, you know, probably a selfish angle on this. But I could feel like you're sort of Take on the same page with me. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to have to go back and reconsider this guy's whole shit. I don't want to have to be like, yeah. whoa, did he secretly suck the entire time? Or was he irresponsible the entire time? That's the thing, because, you know, so much online discourse is instinctively wants to kill darlings. So right. it's like, so now I'm going to have to deal with, actually, Michael Lewis was always bad takes mm -hmm. that I don't want, because like his first book was the original expose of wall street fuckery it was liars poker it was good fucking journalism and i i want that to stick yeah and i'm I disappointed that, that he wasn't able to harness those same instincts for a book about the biggest crypto scammer in the history of the fucking world yeah so can i i'll i'll tell you how i'm rationalizing it and you can tell me how much this scans to you or not okay that i think that some of so i think moneyball's a uh, a better movie than it is a book. I think it's a really, really good movie. It's, I think um, it's a great book too. It's a great book too. Just an excellent movie. But I think that the the thing with the book, and this was a Tommy Craig's observation, uh, as I should credit him off the bat, is that it is a business book. It's a yes. really, really good business book, but it's about a 
hero of capitalism, a guy who sees an innovation or an arbitrage opportunity before anyone else and grasps it with command and courage and reaps the rewards from it. That's fine. It's a right. great story. Like, th there's nothing wrong with it being that. It is the sort of thing, though, that when you slot it into that sort of genre, instead of seeing it as a baseball book, which it it is, but it's not just that, that genre is deranged. And you could do good work <laughs> in it. You know, in the same way that, like, The Big Short's a similar sort of thing, where it's like, it's he... And this is Lewis's gift, I guess, as a reporter, is that he identifies sort of interesting characters and then can tell a story through their actions. Yeah. And then the, the policy stuff emerges very gracefully. You know, sometimes you get Margot Robbie explaining it to you from a bubble bath if you're watching the movie. But in the book version, it's Lewis doing it. And it's very lucid. And you feel like you're learning something, but not like you're being lectured to. The challenge with that is that when you're picking a winner in your story from the beginning of the story, then you are running the risk of that person turning out to be fucking Sam Bankman freed. Right. And if you, if you're not leaving enough room there for doubt and the story that you're telling is like, I never know if I'm using the word overdetermined, right? <laughs> if it is the sort of thing where you're starting off with your conclusion and then you're working your way back character-wise to figure out how this interesting thing happened, you have to be sure that your conclusion is correct. And I think in general, like, it requires a, an amount of skepticism that in this case, you know, and I think also, I guess, in the case of The Blind Side, if you're not applying that to the story throughout, a lot of bad shit can get past you. Yeah, I mean, there's two things here. One is that it's not unlike science, where you don't make the hypothesis with the assumption that you will be proven correct. Like, right. that's bad. That's being a bad scientist. You're doing a poor job. You have to allow for the data to contradict what you your presumptions were. The other thing is that you're doing yourself a disservice as a journalist. And, and I swear to God, I swear to God, when I, when I went on assignments for GQ— the majority of the time, and I told subjects this, I was like, listen, they would say, what kind of story are you going to write? And I said, listen, I don't know what the story is going to be until I talk to the person because I don't want to discount the potential for what the story will be. Because I have gone in thinking the story will be one thing, and then it turns out to be another. That has happened, and you need to allow that to happen because you get better stories that way. Right. So if I had Michael Lewis writing about Sam Bankman-Fried being an absolute fucker who destroys lives and steals literally billions of dollars instead of a goddamn visionary, I'm going to get a better book and he's going to be a better author for it. Right. Also, it's like, what did, say Sam Bangman fried didn't get exposed, as which we should tell people who haven't followed this story. Like, beyond being, like, obviously at this point, cryptocurrency's brand is not what you would describe as strong. No. Uh, it's not, they're not, it's not a very successful sector at this moment. Um, I'm still holding onto my based ape coins um, and I'm looking <laughs> forward to someday cashing that in. But in this case, so Freed being a liar and a cynic, which he was, and there's now, I mean, he's, his trial is underway at this point. There's a lot of internal communications that show that even the things that he got credit for, which, I mean, for a while, this has already been sort of memory hold to a certain extent, he was sort of looked at as the Democrat answer to like a Harlan Crow type benefactor, that he was a guy that had given a bunch of money to like 
not really to left-wing causes, but to Democratic candidates. In many cases, to moderate Democrats. Yeah, and that's like 60 Minutes like interviewed Lewis this week, and Lewis said that Bankman Freed had an offer on the table to Donald Trump to not run for president that was like $5 billion. And 60 Minutes was like, wow, that's a great story. Without once questioning its veracity, which is right. fucking insane. And this is like, oh, this has been the same deal with the Isaacson books. I think of Isaacson as being legit. I mean, like in the sense that he's written a bunch of books and he's run magazines and websites. And then there's bits of there like, Elon told him that he got sent to a wilderness camp by his family. And he's like, every year, three people would die there. And Isaacson's like, wow, let me put that in the book and print it. Yeah. Which is like, what the fuck, dude? That's clearly false. Right. Like, you just this, like. It's exactly the sort of thing a guy would say if he was trying to see how obvious a lie he could get away with telling you. Can I throw something on the fire for this really quickly? I have a question for both of you as people who work in media about this. Yeah, sure. sure. Of course, Eric. Do you think that there's something about like the not this isn't to say that like businessmen in the past were not like this. I feel like they're all like Al Capone where they had an IQ of five. Right. But just like mythology swirled around them. But it's like yep. it's kind of funny comparing like what Michael Lewis wrote before to what he's writing about now for Sam Bankman Freed and then like comparing uh, comparing Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. Not like Steve Jobs was a good guy, but he was an interesting person. No, but he was a bastard and Isaacson showed why he was a bastard. It was great. Right. And like, but then he's like, I got to do the same thing again. Like, do you think it's just the sequel? And also my, my dad and my brother are in finance. So they read Liar's Poker and were inspired by it, which is the whole thing. Michael Lewis was like, no, don't be inspired by this. But all these guys were like, hell yeah, dude, I want that life. Wolf of Wall Street mode. You got to be careful with that. He's like, that'd be so cool. I should try Quaaludes. Yeah. The, I I think that's a good point though, because it's the idea of like, if you see this as a genre that has like its own storytelling tropes and requirements, you need a compelling main character who is also correct. And the idea that we've just somehow like we're losing recipes to the extent where like our Billy beans are all Sam Bankman freeds now. Like I don't have a hard time believing that necessarily. I do. The part of it that like frustrates me is that, yeah, we deserve a higher class of business genius, I guess. I don't know. But like, if someone's going to write, if you're good enough to write a book that is effective about the guys that actually are getting it right, I would think you'd also have the discernment to realize when you're dealing with a bullshitter. You would think, and maybe maybe they did, but they, they didn't care. I want to go back yeah. to Moneyball because it will allow me to segue as best I can to the top of the MLB playoff field because mm. we talked about Moneyball and we talked about how it was a business book and its business ethos permeated pretty much all of sports to a toxic degree in the case of uh, the Houston Rockets uh, and in case in the case of, I would say, two of the top four seeds in these MLB playoffs. We have the Houston yeah. Astros and we have the Atlanta Braves. So let's talk about the Houston Astros in the American League. Um, Roth, they're the defending champions. The Braves, who are the top seed in the NL and the favorites to win it all, this year, won the title before that. How long will I have to live in a world where these two teams are the best teams in the sport by far? A little bit longer. Uh, I think like, the Orioles... What's a little bit? Is it like a year? The Orioles are awfully good. They could definitely win the American League. Um, well, speaking of cynical, they're cheap as shit, but won 100 they're games They're anyway. incredible. I mean, that's like the thing where 
you know how like we've talked about this in the past, how like the Bill Belichick coaching tree just keeps producing gnarlier, sourer crab apples, <laughs> including like, Bill Belichick. Including right Bill now. Belichick. That's the thing is that like the the thing that started it all, like the apple that captured the imagination of America, was very soft and full of just mean, rude worms. Yeah, and yet that same tree is now producing just like little Joe Judges, like just obviously inedible on their face types. The the Orioles are run by a guy that was, I think, by wide acclaim, the least pleasant person that wasn't Brandon Taubman, probably more unappealing in some ways, uh, give or take, uh, than anybody else in the Astros front office. Mike Elias, a real, by all accounts, like kind of a, like a hardcore dickweed guy build an Orioles team, the Orioles payroll is $15 million less than the Rays payroll. Fucking A. They don't have a single veteran player signed to a multi-year deal that's by design. They didn't add at the deadline in the way that they could have because they could have, they have this situation where their farm system is so good that they have like outfielders basically rotting on the vine because there's no room for them on the major league roster. They have this with infielders that would be the sort of guy, they could have made a trade to get Justin Verlander, given more than the Astros gave the Mets. And, and, you know, the Mets would have paid the salary as they had, and they wouldn't have felt it. This is guys that don't have room on the big league roster, and they didn't so do they, it. So they wouldn't, they wouldn't have had to pay anything to Verlander if they had made that trade? I mean, the Astros aren't paying anything to him. The mm. Mets paid his salary. That's what you. That's what they did to get better prospect Right, returns. so then why wouldn't they have made that trade if, it, if it finances aren't a consideration? On principle, I think. Just because, like, I think it's the sort of thing where they, so they don't want to be seen as big spenders, even if they're not. The negative baseball term for it is prospect hugging, but I think that this is where it, we get back to your your Moneyball point. Every one of those young players could be anything. They could turn into DJ Stewart, who is a guy that the Mets wound up getting from the Orioles as a minor league free agent because he was okay. blocked. He's fine. He's not great. He's probably a big leaguer. They could also turn into a major league contributor. They're not going to turn into Gunnar Henderson or whatever, but they could be anything. But because they don't cost anything, because that salary obligations are so low, even if you call them up, you're going to be paying them the league minimum for three years and then, you know, arbitration and all that. As assets, I think that the Orioles are overvaluing them in a way that suggests that they're, they're actually not making baseball decisions there they're making business decisions that whatever it is that you could turn this guy into like they're looking at it in an assessment that is not baseball first which i think is kind of the money ball this is where that that lesson gets lost that for the a's it was you find things that other teams aren't valuing and you realize that they're more valuable than those teams think, and then you can get them on the cheap. That's good. That gets harder and harder as every other team starts to value valuable things roughly as they should. Right. So you have to start kind of digging elsewhere. The part of and that's interesting, you know, like it's kind of value neutral. Like it generally involves paying people less than they probably deserve to be paid, but that's true of every industry. The other side of it, though, the lesson that you would take if you were a cynic or if you were the owner of a baseball team is that not that you're getting more value for less money, but that you're spending less money. And I think that for the Orioles, in this case, the part that I am disappointed in with them, I mean, they won 101 games. They lost 110 games in 2020, 
one. I mean, like, it's incredible <laughs> how fast they were able to turn stuff around. Goddamn. And they did it, you know, they did the thing that they set out to do. They overhauled player development. They wound up producing a ton of really good young players, and their scouting's really good. And it's not it's not a bullshit division either. They're they're no. they're playing with the Yankees and like I know the Red Sox don't give a fuck in the way that they used to, but still there's not a bad team in that division. Like the Yankees and the Red Sox were kind of a mess this year and they were still really quite good. That division sent three teams to the postseason and the Orioles were by a decent margin the best team there, the best team in the American League. Are they are they fun to watch? Like who Yes between this them is and the part the, of and it the that hurts <laughs> is that they're great. They're they're totally likable. The players they have that they developed are cool. Uh, and like certainly, you know, at this point, there's enough guys there that were there for the really shitty teams that like not enough good things can happen to Cedric Mullins and like Ryan Mountcastle for my taste. They went through uh, a lot of shit. This a balanced it's, team or are we talking more uh, that they're going to win a lot of slugfests or pitching duels? No, they're I mean. They're a pretty balanced team. They're, okay. it, the offense is very good. The bullpen had a super electric closer that they're going to be without through the entire postseason. That's going to hurt them, but not as much as it might have because they're really, really good at taking the guys that they get. In some cases, I mean, the guy that they got from the Twins for Jorge Lopez as a throw in, Yenier Cano, was like one of the big, made an all-star team this year, but he was like a guy that, was actively not good at the AAA and major league levels. He had great stuff. He had no idea what he was doing. They fixed him. They're trying to do the same thing with a guy named Shintaro Fujinami that they got from the A's, who I am personally fascinated by because he has like the most dominant stuff of basically any pitcher in the sport if he knows what to do with it, but he's never, he hasn't known what to do with it for 10 years. He had a bad experience in the NPB and has been kind of trying to figure stuff out ever since. They're like, it's easy to cheer for them. It's just frustrating because they didn't push the chips in in the way that I want to see a team do because nothing is promised. You know, you don't know that any of these guys are going to be as healthy or as good in future years as they've been this year. Right. And because their owner is such a shithead uh, that Peter Angelus' son is just vile. Yeah. And, you know, and, wants, and he got he got 30, 30 more years of Camden. Out of yeah. Him too. By basically extorting the city of Baltimore and the state of Maryland in a way that like this is the first time this team's really been good in a long time. It should be good vibes and sunshine all the way. And he keeps being like, I would like to build a mall around Camden Yards. And instead of a rainforest cafe, it's going to be actually something a little less, uh, you know, exciting than that. That's important to me. <laughs> like just a, a lousy rich kid shithead. Well, that, the Astros that are like also the... really good at this point, but we're like used to that. Like they're right. like in this other stage in part because, I mean, they're still kind of cheap, but they did the thing that a Moneyball team could do and that the A's never really did, which is like they actually kept some of their guys. Like they were able to, and they're willing to spend money when and where necessary to make the team better. Okay, Doesn't that's a mean, bit of a bit, that's a bit of a difference. That's, yes, it is. That's but pronounced. It's, and this is the thing, I think, you know, now we're sort of hopscotching between teams, but the Dodgers, for instance, Dodgers won 100 games this year. I have no fucking idea how they did that. Why Why don't you have any idea? They are, this seemed like a retrenchment season. So their best starting pitcher, Walker Beeler, has been out all year. He's hurt. They have Clayton Kershaw, who is still great, but, you know, is declining. They don't really have another starting pitcher that they they totally trust. That it'll be like openers and bulk guys in the postseason for them. Okay. This is not, and the rest of the team is basically like being floated in part by this knack they have for taking veteran players that are seemingly 
on a like steep downturn in their career and making them good again. J.D. Martinez was really good for them again. Fucking Shelby Miller and Jason Hayward were good for them. Guys that like I forgot were basically still big leaguers. They're incredible. And that is the same sort of application of Moneyball processes that in terms of like focusing on the stuff that's cheap finding assets that other teams don't realize are assets. They're just the Dodgers. So they can do all that shit, and then they can also pay Mookie Betts and Clayton Kershaw like Hall of Famers. <laughs> can I ask one final... I, I don't know if this has been rehashed forever. As someone who doesn't follow baseball, why did the Mookie Betts trade happen? So, because ownership is shitty in Boston, mostly. I mean, I think it's the sort of thing... Do they fire... Boston didn't want to pay him. They didn't want to pay him. Okay. The thing yeah. with that is... So they didn't want to pay... They had three stars that they developed that were all sort of maturing into free agent riches around the same time. Mookie was first, and I guess the idea was if you paid him, then would you be able to pay Raphael Devers and and Xander Bogarts? It turns out they didn't want to pay Xander Bogarts either. So it's the sort of thing where they traded Mookie Betts for some guys, and the Dodgers signed him to the contract that he would, you know, deserve and that he has absolutely played up to. And the Red Sox are going to be stuck with this shit for the rest of their life. I mean, like, it's just they, the GM that made that deal at ownership's behest has already been fired. And they've been strongly sort of hinting. They're like, well, we really shouldn't have traded Mookie Betts. He didn't want to do that shit. Like, I think everybody knew that was a bad deal. It just, it looks a lot worse because, I mean, Betts was so amazing for the Dodgers this year. He played all over the diamond. Like, this is a guy that he came up as an infielder. He played, like, second base and shortstop and center field and all this. He did everything for that team. He did as much as any one baseball player could do. And to the extent that the Dodgers really are a contender, and I'm not 100% sure, but, you know, you can't rule any of this shit out. Like, so much of it is him and Freddie Freeman. They were That is, like, about as good as two players can be to help a team win. You had to bring it back to the Red Sox, didn't you, Eric? How they're bad. I don't even like the Red Sox. I like the Mets. Mm, a likely story. <laughs> no! <laughs> we all know that no reasonable person would choose to like the Mets. You're not even letting me talk about Drew Holiday on this episode. So <laughs> that's let's right. not even, fuck, Drew, let's not even fucking topic. go there. Yeah, that's, we, <laughs> we have to finish. We're almost, we're almost done with the fucking field. We have to finish. We have to talk about the Braves, who are the favorite, and I would assume the heavy favorite, how did this team, and you've mentioned it before, Roth, uh, on this podcast, but I, I want to go over the fact that they have locked in an incredible roster for cheap for a very long time. How did they do that? So our buddy Hannah Kaiser wrote a story about this at Yahoo, and I read it with great interest. Hannah does very good work. I still don't fucking get it. I still don't know how they managed to do this stuff. The developing the players, scouting the players, doing the sort of light human trafficking stuff that baseball teams do in South and Central America. Sure, every team does that and the Braves do it better than everyone else. How they are able to get guys repeatedly, I mean, obviously they're buying in the teams winning 100 games every year. It's still bizarre to me that they were able to build this core while other teams were trying. It kind of makes clear, uh, again, I don't know exactly that this qualifies as Moneyball, but it is the sort of thing where the bit that they unlocked, and this is sort of like the way that the Lakobs used to brag in the early days of the Golden State Warriors dynasty, that they were like, we were the first people to notice that three is a bigger number than two. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. The Braves' big innovation is like signing your really good young players for the best part of their career at a what turns out to be kind of a value price. I don't know how they fucking figured that out, 
Uh, it's not the most complicated thing in the world, but how they're continually able to do it, I don't know. The team is amazingly good. October's it's, stupid and anything could happen. The fucking team slugged 501 this year. The, as a team, they slugged 500. Like, I don't know how anybody beats them. It, is it similar to, um, in the NFL, It always it's always the right move to overpay your players early because mm. what happens is, you know, you pay, you pay Patrick Mahomes 300 million. Everyone's like, Oh my God, 300 million. That's so much money to play a kid's game. Or, you know, wank, wank, whatever. Yeah. But you know, two years after that, he'll be like the 10th highest paid quarterback in the right. league because, because the salary cap escalates along with revenues and all that stuff. So you're always better off. If it's a guy who is in his prime, who is going to be good for the next four or five years, it always behooves you to pay them now yeah. than to just wait around for them to become more expensive and older and shittier. Is are the Braves able to, were the Braves able to do that, or is baseball not that kind of structure? So baseball careers obviously are shaped a little different than NFL careers, but sure. I think on principle, what you said is is correct and does apply to this. That there's like a period of a baseball player's career where given the way that the, you know, sort of economics of the sport work, they're going to be underpaid relative to how much value they produce. Because like young players are paid less. Even in arbitration, you're getting awards that are less than you would get on the free market. Sure. In the same way that like, you know, people periodically point out like, if Le there was no salary cap in the NBA, LeBron James would have been worth $300 million a season at his peak or whatever, you know, like these numbers are all sort of abstract at some point. They're so big and <laughs> there's so many things structurally designed to keep them from actually coming to pass. What's interesting with the, with the Braves in terms of what periods of time they've, they've bought out, they are paying these guys now in the sense that in a lot of these instances, they're paying people not a ton of money, but in the millions of dollars for seasons where they would otherwise be paid in the hundreds of thousands of dollars for the years before they're even arbitration eligible. And I guess that little gesture of sort of good faith makes up for the fact that, as you said, like the market marches on, people get paid more every year, every off season, just because that's the way that things work. And so not only do these things look like a good deal at the time, but the idea of what Ronald Acuna's contract is going to look like in three years if he remains Ronald Acuna and the going rate for outfielders, almost all of whom are going to be worse than him, if that continues to go up, then like these just continue to look smarter and smarter and smarter, which well, is- right, I'm looking at Acuna's deal now and it's $17 million a year for the next six years. It does not fluctuate as the contract progresses at right. all. It's flat. And that's and it's the sort of thing where, so some of that is that he was getting paid, you know, 17 million or 15 million or whatever he was getting a few years ago for a season where per arbitration, he would have been getting five. And that's great, but it is like, it is an unbelievable advantage to have a guy getting paid half what he's worth. Yeah. Cause this market. is a guy who should be making 30, $40 million. If right? He had a season this year that like basically no one has ever had in terms of the combination of like how many stolen bases he had and how many homers he had. Is he cool or does he yes. have like weird takes? I, or it fucking like pains me, but yes. the Bra uh, This is the other thing with them is that I, I had a, a ball writer explain to me that like the Braves coaching staff is like one of every kind of crusty baseball psycho. Like every one of the, like just there's a lot of different ways that a, like a sort of a lifer in baseball can wind up being a mutant in the same way, you know, as in the 
NFL or the NBA, but it's different with baseball. So they have like one of every kind of weirdo. The team itself is like pretty fun, likable. Spencer Strider, who's their ace, is like kind of just seems like a cool guy. Like he like listens to decent enough music and seems to have decent enough politics somehow. I have no idea how any of this worked out. Like he literally went to Clemson and has a mustache. <laughs> but but that I mean, I don't know. I I've not hated the Braves the way that I think a lot of Mets fans hate the Braves. I used to go on vacation with my family to Hilton Head, South Carolina, and I would watch them on fucking Superstation and all that fucking, when they were bad. Yeah, I always... And so I have a soft TV-ish. spot for them. Like, I watched Bob Horner on TV. You yeah, know, like, this, I saw things that no child should see. Perms. <laughs> like, you people wouldn't believe. But, so I've never really hated them. And in this case, it's, you know, ownership is gross. John Malone is gross. Like, they did a lot of shitty stuff under their previous GM, but, like, the team is exactly as good as they seem and the players are really likable. So I'm, I've am i steeled myself for uh, the outcome that I expect here. Like the team that you think is going to win is never going to win. But I think the Braves seem to me like the best team in baseball this year by a noticeable enough amount that I have a hard time picking against them. Uh, what team would you pick to unseat them? If, who would have the best shot of beating them? This is annoying. I think it's Houston. Like, I don't like that. Right. Uh, yeah. That's not like, that's not all that appetizing. Not just because like I've seen it before too, but they, that's true. They managed to stay. I mean, they had some guys this year that really declined and they had, they got parts of seasons due to injury from Jose Altuve and Jordan Alvarez. And, uh, they got Justin Verlander from the Mets around the deadline. All of those guys have been absolutely vintage, excellent down the stretch. And it's like, I've seen those like three dudes be good enough to win a team in World Series recently enough that I like have a hard time, you know, imagining that it wouldn't happen again. Time for our guy of the week. Every week we remember an athlete of yours, not a Hall of Famer necessarily, but just a guy who makes you think, hey, I remember that guy. Well, we just remember Bob Horner Roth, but I got one more uh, baseball luminary for you to remember. Very nice. It's Pat Borders. You remember that guy? Yes, I remember Pat Borders. I, U.S. I went, Olympic hero, Pat Borders. I went through the, the list of World Series MVPs because it's always littered with guys like Mark yeah. Lemke and David Freeze and shit like that. Yep. So I was like, I was like, oh, I'm going to find some guys in this list. And sure as shit, there was Pat Borders right Borders there. Borders had, so that was an amazing World Series runs with the Blue Jays that he won it. Yep. But then he also had like this thing that only backup catchers can have where like his career ran its course as a starter. I mean, it barely, he barely had a, a peak as a starter. And then he just like came back when he was 40 and played in the majors again, which I think is gotta be pretty cool. Like, I mean, it's probably also weird because you're in there with a bunch of like 21 year old millionaires and you're just like a guy with three kids. But yeah, it's like how I feel in Slack every day. Uh, (laughs) Yes, I was going to say, like asking a younger coworker to explain what Skibidi toilet is or something like that. Like, I don't necessarily need to know that. Okay. Now we have time for. To open up the fun bag, these are real questions from Defector readers and distraction listeners. We only have time for one. Okay. Uh, this is from Ian Roth. He says, is there anybody alive who will rise to Jesus Shakespeare Mozart status where the average idiot standing on the street would recognize their name a thousand years from now? So my answer, Sam Bankman Freed. Oh. I think he got a... I don't know. Do you, I mean, do you think there's anybody? I don't so really. So it's always random. I think history is very random in selecting these sorts of people. Like I, I really do. I don't, I don't, I, I think it'll be someone random, but I'm going to join you in joke mode 
And I'm going to say New York City Mayor Eric Adams. Oh, yeah. Be, because let me tell you something, Roth, and I, I've been sitting on this joke for a while, but his presidential run is going to be so special. It's going to be electric. It's going to be the most special presidential run because let me tell you something. You know how like you've always felt like Trump is one of one? Like there's not going to be like every Republican like tries to be like him, but yeah. fails miserably and all this shit. He can do it. Yeah. That's Adam the guy. Is kooky enough to do it. And he's also, I think he's just scratching the surface. Like I don't want him to be the mayor of New York anymore, <laughs> no. but I do kind of want him to just like if there was a way for him to remain exactly as in the public eye but no longer be in charge of shit that impacts my life i would love it because he's gonna start like he already he got an earring late in life that's not that's a power move i think he could start doing stuff like what if he started wearing gloves what if he just wore gloves all the time there, I, don't honestly, have a hard, I don't have a hard time imagining that there's that's honestly exciting. no there's nothing i wouldn't believe about him because he's so genuinely strange he's a piece of shit too yeah but he's also a really strange piece of shit and that's the combination where listen every new york mayor thinks they can run for president and then they fuck up horribly and he'll do the same he'll be like yeah vote blue as in cop blue like he'll right. say shit like that right he'll go to like at that part of it you know again if it gets him out of the fucking paint i hope he runs now but the idea of him walking around a state fair in iowa being like terrific let me try that i don't eat meat i'm eating meat right now by the way like any of that like that chapter of his career would be incredible to me i'm very 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 excited the that. first vegan to just eat, be hospitalized from eating too much hot dish eric silver is our producer brandy google is our editor our theme song is by kirk hamilton ads and production services are by multitude and you can subscribe to defector.com just go to defector and hit that subscribe button you can also email us at distraction at defector.com or even call us that's right call us at 909- 726-3720 and leave a message. That's 909 Panera Zero. Mm. We will see you next week. Thanks, Roth. Bye. Bye. Happy playoffs, everybody.